Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. I was going to say, I don't know whether you're getting anything out of these Upanishad readings or not, but I do notice that uh, they have tremendously influenced your sitting. And I think that's fantastic. So something is going on somewhere. You may not understand some of it, but it's working. <laughs> that's neato. Anyway, we continue with it. One unmoving that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not for it progresses ever in front. That standing passes beyond others as they run. In that, the master of life establishes the waters. That moves, and that moves not. That is far, and the same is near. That is within all this, and that also is outside all this. But he who sees everywhere the self, in all existences, and all existences in the self, shrinks not thereafter from aught. He in whom it is the self-being that has become all existences that are becomings, for he has the perfect knowledge. How shall he be deluded? Whence shall he have grief? who sees everywhere oneness. It is he that has gone abroad. That which is bright, bodiless, without scar of imperfection, without sinews, pure, unpierced by evil, the seer, the thinker, the one who becomes everywhere the self-existent has ordered objects perfectly according to their nature from years sempiternal. <coughs> yep. 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 Now, in the olden days in India, <laughs> centuries before the Buddha, you know, he was born 2,500 years ago, 500 years before Jesus. And this was centuries before that. There were at that time, and it must have been so in several other countries. I mean, there was Egypt, and there was China, uh, and India. What was happening around in Europe they were running from the ice, for one thing, <laughs> you know, and then the, uh, and so a group of them that were called Aryans, they moved from Europe to India. And uh, they are still, some of them are still there, pure Aryans. Um, They also must have had something, and I think some of that they brought with them to India. But somewhere in there, before we knew, we as humanity, knew anything about writing or reading or anything like that, here were these Vedas and the Upanishads. And they were passed from teacher to student, from teacher to student. They were memorized. 
And these gurus, these seers, those who see, and seers, they are called, they're sometimes rishis, as in Japan they are called roshis, there they are called rishis. <laughs> they lived in ashrams, little communities, little communes, and in these ashrams they taught what they called the knowledge of the self. And these ashrams, the seers, you know, with their ashrams, they lived in forests. And it was to the forest, of course, that Buddha went when he began his search. He sat with these gurus and in meditation and learned what they had to give of this knowledge of the self. And of course, it was he that said they haven't gone far enough and went off on his own. You know, but then he sat under a tree also. You know. Not that any of these men were against the life in the villages or in the marketplace, but they knew of the beauty of the forest, of this silence in the forest, you know, where they could witness the joy of the flowers and the joy of the birds, you know, and, uh, you know, realizing this is a tremendous place to sit, you know, for meditation under a tree. But they were not against the world. They were not in the forest for any negative reason. They were in the forest for these positive reasons. It was not a renunciation of life for them. It was finding a place for rejoicing. Hmm? Now in this world, in this marketplace, we do pick up conditioning, right? We are first of all conditioned by the parents and we're conditioned by our friends and we're conditioned by our teachers and then some more conditioning by friends. And then we learn how to act in a business-like manner, how to appear, you know, is halo on straight in the business world, how to let greed run our lives in this business of making money. Not everybody, of course, is, is this greedy, but uh, some more so than others, like everything else, you know. <clears throat> However, St. Paul called living in this life, in the marketplace, he called it corruption. We live in corruption. We have corrupted the truth in this becoming. We have corrupted the being. We live in corruption. These are his words, huh? And so he espoused a state of incorruption. We are born in corruption and we die in incorruption. We are resurrected in incorruption. We are born into conditioning and we die to the unconditioned. In the unconditioning, hmm? the ego dies. You know, and there was this old farmer down south, and he could barely speak above a whisper. He had laryngitis, huh? And here he is one day, leaning on the fence, the side of this little country road, and he's watching his hogs. There were about a dozen or so hogs, and they were in a patch of woodland across the road. And every few minutes, the hogs would scramble through a hole in the fence, tear across the road to another patch of woodland. And then after a few minutes, why, they'd scurry back again. And then after a little while, they'd scurry over onto another little place in the woodland. And then after a while, they'd come scurrying back in this hole in the fence. And then back over there where there was another one. See? And then they'd come back again. And it, this, this man, this farmer, is watching them do this, you know, and he's just standing there, just watching him. And a stranger passes by, and he stopped also to watch. I mean, somebody's watching, you turn out and watch too, you know, and down south, it's not much else to do, you just stand around and watch. You know, maybe we all move south. 
And finally he asked the farmer, what's the matter with them hogs anyway? You know, there ain't nothing wrong with them hogs, said this old farmer, you know. And he's whispering hoarsely, I should have whispered, there ain't nothing wrong with them hogs. <laughs> them hogs belong to me. And before I lost my voice, you know, I used to call them to their feed, you know, suey, 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 you call pigs, you hogs, you know. And after I lost my voice, I used to tap on the fence, you know. You had a stick, you know, on the fence. And the hogs would come running finally. They learned how to do this, you know. And then he paused for a minute and he shook his head very gravely and he says, and now them cussed woodpeckers up in them trees has got these poor hogs plumb crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am. Huh? Yeah. Watch you jump. Scramble. Scramble back again. Yes, a wee boy. Conditioning, we call it. Now, in these olden times, uh, in these ashrams hidden in the forest, and they were called forest dwellers at that time, the early, early teachers. And it was decided, and nobody, of course, knew by whom, or at what time, it may have been very gradual. But very early on, and it has now, of course, become the tradition, these forest dwellers, these seers, decided that before a person has any experience of the world, better have some taste of God. Hmm? That taste could save a person from being overly corrupted. Or in a very few, it would save them from being corrupted at all. You know. The influence of the marketplace wouldn't be quite so penetrating. You know, if you've known something deeper, if you've gone below the surface of the superficial, which is very difficult to do, but if you can do it even a little, then this superficial or this surface in which we bounce around like them hogs, you know, is not so tragically important. We know teenagers, and some people, of course, remain teenagers all their lives. They always hover in this middle state, you know, this great delight where they have all this giggling and the telephone calls and, and they're, you know, they're screaming, you know, it, you've seen them on TV. If you don't have them at home, they, the least little thing, and they're screaming and they're giggling, you know. And then over here is this great tragedy. Oh, he didn't look at me. Oh, my God, you know, it's the end of the world, this great tragedy. It's every, every moment is living as if a climax were erupting, you know, and it's very difficult for them to handle, and it's very difficult for anybody to handle them. I mean, because they just don't see anything except this bloom, bloom, bloom. Hmm? Yeah. Teenagers have difficulties with themselves. Don't we? <laughs> well, anyway, back in those days, or and still today, you know, in India, the first part of life, let's say like the first 20, 25 years or so, had to be devoted to meditation. You went and lived with this guru in his ashram. You served this master. You enjoyed his presence, and you rejoice just in being in his presence, you know. <clears throat> now here, the person now today is taught, in a lot of cases, reading, writing, and arithmetic. In those days, whatever was equivalent, they weren't taught reading and writing and arithmetic because we didn't have any, see. But they had to learn by heart the Vedas 
and the Upanishads. That was their education. All oral, all memorized. And there's a lot of Upanishads to say nothing of the Vedas. Now anyway, after about 20, 25 years <clears throat> living in this ashram, comes now the second stage. And this is the stage of the householder. Uh, the, the person comes back from the ashram, lives with his family again, uh, goes to work, and earns some money, gets married, and lives this worldly life, has his business. But he has, because of these first years, uh, he has this inner center. He has a grounding. He has a balancing. Whatever glimpses he may have had during the first part of his life, he will stay with him. They will remind him, they will haunt him, that this world is momentary. No matter how long it may seem in perspective to a youngster, you know, where an hour is like a week, and then when you get older, why then a week is like an hour. Terrible. It is all momentary, the hour and the week and the life, you know. And having had this training, he does not become overly greedy for either money or power or prestige or for his ego. Hmm? He doesn't. But he knows he's living the life of the wheel, the samsara, as far as the outer is concerned. But within, he remains quiet. He's not yet the hub, but he is sort of hovering around and kind of adjacent to it, huh? So that if he is rich or poor, or becomes famous, or just remains a nobody, no mind. You know. He has learned within this area of environment not to be deceived by appearances. The appearances of the world, and also not to be deceived by himself, which takes one long look so that he is tied all of his life now to what he was taught be it right or be it wrong this is the guide in his life and now it was decided way back when in the early days by these gurus that the experience of living is necessary to reinforce the experience of these first 20 to 25 years. You know, um, when uh, Dr. Plotoff was <clears throat> through college, he was 21, and he had been studying with his second teacher already this Chinese man who taught him the Tao, learned Taoism through him. And uh, so Henry, his teacher asked him what he was going to do, and he said, well, I'm going to go out and be a teacher. No. You be out there like an elephant, and you roll in the dirt until you learn something, and then you can teach. So that's what Henry did. He became a psychiatrist. Hmm? There are, you know, like a little child maybe would know the self, but he doesn't know it's the self, and how is he going to teach anybody anything? He's not rounded out to say, you're acting like a boob, or you're doing things very fine. You can't say that. So, to learn the foibles of man. And there is a great deal to learn. 
There is a great deal to learn just to be rounded out, to have this personality that is rounded out through living and through working in this world. So to them, this second phase, this living and working in the world, was very much like an examination. It was their criterion whether or not that person had achieved uh, with his first 20 years hmm, what he was supposed to achieve. Did you really achieve something or was it only the light of the master in which you were standing reflected, huh? Something in his presence, something you borrowed from him. You have to journey into the world with what you know. And this is the test. So, so that you can see that the experiences are part of your being. And what you have experienced and what you know of the self through your experience, no one can take this away from you. No one can diminish them. They are yours. They are authentically yours. Hmm? It's a good procedure if you've got a real guru. Hmm? Good procedure. But of course, this is this world. And there's a lot of ego in this world. And so there are cases where the understanding was merely intellectual. And uh, such was the case in, in, in the part of this son, which we read in Prasna Upanishad. He's coming home now after his training. And he had great pride in his being able to quote the Upanishads. Boy, he could rattle them off, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> so finally, the father seeing all this pride he had in himself, the son, you know, he asked him, have you ever asked for the knowledge by which we hear the unhearable, by which we perceive the unperceivable, by which we know the unknowable? Oh, what is that? Huh? So then the father explains that. He says, if we know one lump of clay, that it is clay, then all things made of clay are known. See? The difference being only in name. This is a pot and this is a pan, but they're clay. Hmm? The truth, see, all these different things we make of clay, a vase, a pot, you name them, huh? These are differences in name. The truth, clay. Hmm? Yeah. The same with gold. So is that knowledge, knowing which we know all. So this son looks at him and he says, well, surely these teachers of mind are ignorant of this knowledge or else they would have taught it to me. Hmm? You teach me, he says to his father. Hmm? So then says the father, in the beginning there was existence. Only one. And this one said, now remember this is not really saying, you know, but out of this one, he said, let there be many. And out of himself, he projected the universe. Yeah. And in this projection, which he is in, of course, you are in your own projections. Yeah. In this way, he entered in every being and everything. All that is has itself in him alone. And that, the father says to the son, that art thou. Oh, well, please tell me more, says the son. And they go through a great many things about the animals, about the insects, and about the trees. And finally, 
you know, the son is, keeps saying, well, tell me more, tell me more. Finally, the, the thing of telling is over with, you know, so he says to the son, you bring me the fruit of the Nigrota tree. Oh, and he runs over and gets the fruit of the Nigrota tree. Probably some kind of a fig tree. And he brings him one and he says, here it is, sir. And the father says, break it open. It's done. What do you see? Some seeds, sir. Extremely small, sir. <laughs> father knows something. Break one of them. Little tiny itty bitty seeds. And then he says, it's broken, sir. Well, what do you see? Nothing, sir. And the father then says to him, the subtle essence you do not see, the subtle essence which you do not see, and in that is the whole of the Nigrota tree. The whole tree is in that essence of that, excuse me, nothing. All things have their existence in the subtle essence that is the self, and that, that art thou, tatwamasi, tatwamasi, tatwamasi. Always remember that, tatwamasi. You are that. Hmm? Well, that story you know pretty well. I tell it frequently, because it's quite apropos in many places, right? Anyway, after many years of being a householder, and the person now is reaching middle, middle age, uh, the 20-year-olds the, uh, are, are coming home from the ashrams, and during the next 20 years, the father will see that they're in some kind of a business, or that they're working at something, and then that they're getting married, and that they're having children. And the father begins to remove himself slowly, slowly, slowly not reluctantly, but very happily removing himself from the scene. And the son is given the place of the householder. Now let the son play the game of the marketplace. Otherwise the fathers are in the same game competing against their sons. Hmm? So let the fathers get out. I think I heard this about somebody once, you know, these People who are chairman of the boards of these big companies, they, they're there until they're way old, you know, and their grandsons are already in the business, so that the grandfathers are competing against the fathers, and the fathers competing against the sons, and they're all there in this business. You know, there was even one guy in London, I think I, seems to me I heard about this, that uh, he left a will. He died when he was about 85, and he was chairman of the board. And he, in his will, he said he wanted, after death, to continue to be chairman of the board. And they had to set him up, you know, set something up there as if he were still chairman of the board. Ridiculous, huh? That's how some people are not going to let go of that control and not going to let go of this power that they feel. Yeah. But, uh, let the, you know, in India, you know, it's let the fathers get out. The children now, you know, are now in the game. And the grandson is chasing the girls, and look at the grandfather's chasing the same girls. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody once said they all need their teddy bears. <laughs> See, this insight into the human psyche they had. Huh? The father goes back to the ashram. Happily. I mean, it's a tradition. There, there, this is, he knows what this is going to happen, what's going to happen to him, and he does it happily. Somebody tells you now to go to the ashram. <laughs> you wouldn't go when you were younger. Why should I go now? No. <laughs> anyway, that non-dual Atman, the self, or this no-self within, Though never stirring, this is another translation, you know, is swifter than mind. The devas, that is the senses, the devas cannot reach it, for it moves ever in front. 
Though standing still, it overtakes others who are running. Because of Atman, Vayu, which is the world soul, apportions the activities of all. Not as poetic as the other, but you know, gives one for thinking in a little different direction. One unmoving. And we are sort of going along with the point of view of the Vedantists this morning, now, for now. The Vedantists. Yeah. The Atman. The unmoving. The unmoving. Never stirring from its nature. Its true nature. Huh? Always remains the same. Always. There is nothing absolutely positively nothing which can destroy that immutability that unchange that changelessness there's nothing that can change it at the same time and these two verses now the atman is described as motionless and having motion which seems to be a great contradiction to our thinking minds, you know, to our intellect. It moves and it moves not. And now, um, I tried, I have tried over and over to come up with some way of describing this, that it moves and it moves not. Well, there is this flame. As long as the candle and the wick is there, it's that flame. And unless there's a breeze, we'll see there's something already that makes it move, which is not the case in this. Supposing we had a, a pool of water, and you've seen a, a pool of water where it's very quiet, and it comes off of, from a river or a brook going by, but here's this little pool, and all of a sudden, and there's nothing disturbing in it at all. And all of a sudden, there's a little bug that lights on it. And so there's ripples in this water. So that there is this kind of emotion. But the pool of water itself has not moved. Um, see, it's very crude. It's very difficult to explain this. It moves and it moves not. It, it's... it's um, well, now, if you had second sight, you'd look at that chair, and that chair is standing there, and it does move, huh? But it's moving. And that essence, which is you, it doesn't move, but it's moving. But it isn't moving. And what are you going to do with it? All I can say to you is, look at it. Hmm? There's something here in you that doesn't move. It's like ever since you've become aware of yourself, you haven't aged. The body has, but you haven't. You look inside of yourself and you're the same age that you've always been. That's why teenagers are so, they want to grow up. They want to be the age of this self. And then after they're the age of this self, they want to slow down because they want to stay at the age of this self. You don't follow me? Yeah, okay. Somebody does. God. <laughs> when we finally uncondition ourselves, well, that is when we slip out from under this ego, then there is this experience of perceiving this Atman. Hmm? And we will see, it stands still. Well, now we can go at it this way. The radiance of the Atman. See, this is a movement. It's like uh, uh, the light from the sun, or the, it's really energy. It isn't light until it hits this atmosphere. The light of the sun, the energy of the sun, it moves. It's well, how fast does light move? 172,000 <laughs> a minute, a second. 172,000 miles a second. 
It's moving. See? I think that's swifter than mine. <laughs> I cannot conceive, you see, in my mind, of 172,000 miles per second. See, it boggles it into nothing, standing still, you know. Now, ordinarily, <clears throat> we think, you can do it, you can do it. Ordinarily, we think of the mind as being encased in our body. Hmm? It's sitting in here, isn't it? Where else is it going to be? Yeah. It can't be outside of me. If it were outside of me, how would I use it? Where's your consciousness? Hmm? Where is your consciousness? That's a good question. Where is it? Anyway, we say we think the way we think because of the way we are. We think that the mind is encased in this body. However, this mind that is encased in this body, it's boxed in by this brain, uh, it can travel in a twinkling of an eye, it can be in India. Huh? In a twinkling of an eye, it can be in Europe. In a twinkling of an eye, it can be on the moon. See how fast you went in your mind? Yeah. It can go far, far away. It can go to many, many places. It can also travel to the depths of the ocean. It can travel to the depths of you, however deep that may be. And when it travels to the depths of you, what does it find? The Atman, the self. And it finds that it is already present. There is, uh, to me, implied in this that in our, through our ongoing from amoeba, from that state of consciousness, which is what it is, and then through the birds and the bees and the plants and the animals and the man, to this, where we are, objective consciousness. Huh? <clears throat> that before anyone is conscious of an object, one must first be conscious of himself. Hmm? One must be self-conscious before one can admit to an object. You know, the object which is standing right in front of the consciousness. So there is self-knowledge before the knowledge of any object. You think about that for a while. You know, if there are things that you do not comprehend and that you do not see, it is because they are still uh, submerged in you. you know, maybe in the subconscious, maybe in the unconscious. But then when it rises out of the unconscious, it has become an object for viewing until such time as it becomes object, it is part of you and you can't see it. This is why you're having difficulty seeing the self. Hmm? It is so much a part of you. So if you will disentangle yourself from yourself for a little bit, then comes this whole. Hmm? Think about it. It's a it's kind of a thought hmm? to mess around with. Like we should be messing around with some of these things instead of some of what we do. Anyway, that the gods reach not. And this refers to the senses. 
The Sanskrit root is dev, dv, or sometimes dive, diva. So we get the word diva, opera star, huh? div or dev, which means to shine. It means to enlighten. It means to reveal. So a deva is a revealing one. What do your senses do? They reveal this world to you. Hmm? Hmm? Don't the senses do that? I mean, how does a little amoeba know where it is? It feels there is something, an oyster in the, in the ocean, you know. Uh, it doesn't have any eyes, doesn't have any hands, uh, but it has feeling, it the sense of touch. And so uh, something comes along and it bounces on its shell and all sense of touch. It lives by the sense of touch. But through this sense, this sense, something is revealed to it. Hmm? You would be surprised, I think, if you knew how much the sense of touch reveals to you that you don't pay any attention to. Hmm? Eyes, we see. What gives the eye its sight? What gives the ear its sound? What gives the tongue its noise? A shining, revealing something that enlightens. The Atman is in all of this moving, without which there would be no sight or sound or taste or anything. So, okay, so the senses, the ears and the eyes and so on, they do reveal the objects. But now the senses, it is said, are further away from the Atman than the mind. See, so this is Atman, mind, and then senses. The activities of the senses can be controlled by the mind. And the Atman outstrips the mind and look to where all the mind can go. But it is beyond the senses, which cannot even get a glimpse of it. Although, like the eyes, they cannot see without it. That's where they get in Zen, you know, there's a thing, it was this saying about, it's like the teeth trying to bite themselves. You try it. <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, this things are in their order. Fire burns, clouds give rain, the sun gives light. All these and all the other powers, that is the forces and the energies, function in their respective places within their own laws, without confusion. Wind remains wind, water remains water, although it can become steam and vapor and ice, but it's still water, you know, like the Buddha. It can become all kinds of things, but it remains the Buddha. The elements do not step over their boundaries. They act within their own laws so that the activities of the universe following the laws of the universe are possible because the eternal consciousness is the inmost essence and the ultimate reality of all of it. Now, in Chinese, they have this law. The universe, the law of the universal nature, the law of the innermost essence, from which all things flow and out of which all things function 
And this law of this innermost core is called Li. All right, I knew I was in there somewhere, huh? The self-existent has ordered objects perfectly to their nature from years sempiternal. Wind is wind, water is water. Hmm? Yeah. So now we move away from the Vedanta's point of view a little bit to another way of looking. One unmoving that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not, for it progresses ever in front. That standing passes beyond others as they run. In that the master of life establishes the waters. <clears throat> now to our minds, and surely you must know this, you can see yourself doing this, our everyday thinking, the mind deals in fragments. So we can say the mind sees fragments. It deals with fragments. It has got a piece here and it's got a piece there. And so that we have got God and the world. These are pieces. These are fragments. See? And they are very distinct from each other because they are fragments in our minds. See, we do allow our minds to deceive us. The mind does not seem to be able to think of God and the world at the same time. Hmm? And yet it is all one universe. God is the stable and the eternal reality, existence and all non-existence you know, is God. It's stable and it's unmoving. And uh, of course, the moving is the change. And it's a change in space and time. It's a change in form. But he, being beyond, that is transcending space and time, is unchangeable. He has within himself everything that is. That's all, all it is, all that ever has been and all that ever will be. He has it all within himself. And yet he does not increase nor decrease. He is beyond cause and effect and beyond relativity. This is the Brahman, what we call God. Now we did it, discussed it before that this world is a cyclic movement which we call a samsara, the wheel of life. And the world, this movement, this motion, is the moving of this divine, what is called by them, the divine consciousness, the shining, revealing, enlightening consciousness. It is the activity thereof, this world. <clears throat> this world, the samsara, this wheel, exists by its movement. If the movement is halted, that would be the cessation or the dissolution of the wheel. As soon as you drop my world, my world is not what is, is. Hmm? Well, you can see this, can't you, in your meditation? that you drop your ego and everything that comes along with it, and all of a sudden, boom, the other is there. And when you do not hold it anymore, then you're back on the wheel. Hmm? Now, the activity, or this motion, or this energy of this consciousness in action, in its very motion, brings about the oppositions that are found in unity. See, we call them polarities. The, the very activity brings them about. We brings about what we think of and we perceive as divisions in time and space. 
of groupings of circumstances. And they seem very real to us. And yet they're only symbols of being. They are symbolic. Unity is the eternal truth of all things. The diversity is only the play of this truth, the play of this unity. You know, again, we come back to this sun, the symbol of the sun. The sun, you know, it, it stands, hmm? and it is in itself the unity of truth. It stands. Uh, we could say that the play would be the energy emitted from this sun, by which all things grow and mature and dissolve again. It's the play. And, but at the same time, this unity is standing and we move around it. We are the motion. It's standing. The sense of unity, and unity to experience unity is quite important. The sense of unity, to experience this unity, has been called vidya. This is the knowledge, vidya, unity. The sense of diversity, this is our fragmented minds, our piecemeal minds, is called the ignorance, or avidya. But we must remember that this diversity is not to be considered as false compared with the, um, the unity. Diversity is not false compared to unity. It is simply ignorance of unity. It is the play in ignorance of this unity. All the changes and all this many that we deal with all the time, including ourselves, you know, is not false. Unless you hold in your mind, you have a mental picture of the sense if you omit, you know, if you leave it out in your picture that you have of this world, and everybody has a picture of some kind, you know, if you leave out of that picture this, this true unity, that everything really is unity, because without that unity, there is nothing. And if you have a picture that you carry around with you of this world without allowing into it the unity, then your picture is false. Now, in that instance, it would be false. We must remember that what we look at, regardless of what is reported to us through the senses, what we look at is not a figment of our minds. It is a reality. That one is preeminently real. And the others, that is the many, the world, is not unreal. Now we come back to this, what we talked about last Sunday somewhat, or the Sunday before, whatever, this Sanskrit term, Satchitananda, which I hope you remember some of the description. <laughs> Being or existence, consciousness, and bliss. Right? Satchitananda. Now, Sat is that, that essence, <clears throat> that which is. And Chit is the activity of consciousness or of this existence, the action of being. It's the, also considered the power of knowledge. Now the one and the many are 
representations in cheat, <coughs> both the one and the many. Only non-existence is not. What being sees, because it is conscious, what it sees, that's what it becomes. It sees itself, and that becomes in its projection in the conditions of space and time, itself, in its representation in space and time. So when we talk about creation of this world, it's not the making of something out of nothing. Hmm? Or it's not the making of one thing out of another thing. It is, instead, it's a, this projection of this Brahman into the conditions of space and time. This projection It is a becoming of forms of conscious existence. The becomings, the becomings of forms of conscious existence is this world. It's not unreal. Our, our state of consciousness, the becoming, we're becoming, we're becoming, we're becoming. Our state stems from what we call, that is, hmm? existence, you know, sat. Our becoming is projected from being. And in this becoming, we are all, all of us, Atman, because we are Brahman. Even though we are many kinds of representations, and we enter into various relationships with it in our becomings. Relationships with it. Our relationships are with it. In spite of our objective identifications. Do you understand that? Mm. I guess not. Just as a Brahman or this existence, let us call it existence, being, the being, projects itself into time and space, and yet it is himself still that it is projected. It sees and, and something and it's, it becomes it because it is conscious. It's the same thing you do. Your consciousness sees something and you become it. So here we are, we know how to project. We don't always know we're doing it, but we do know how to project. You fall in love, and you project what you call love inside of yourself onto that other person, and then you have a relationship. Where did this love come from? You see, your consciousness made something of something. You projected and made a relationship. But outside of that objective identification with it, the relationship is actually with Ottoman. This is what propelled the falling in love in the first place. It's looking for itself. And it's trying to make things objective so that it can see. Because as I said before, self-knowledge, then you can see the object. But if I fall in love with John, then my relationship is with it, underneath the scene. Huh? Looking, it is looking for itself and is looking for itself through its projection. 
and this consciousness of falling in love. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, that's nice. This is what objective identification is all about. It's not an unnecessary phase you're going through. It's a very necessary phase. And you jolly well better get with it, huh? <clears throat> In being, everyone is Atman. Because it is a, the individual Atman and the universal Atman. Everyone is in being, everyone is Atman. In the thought, what are you? Hmm? Yeah. In the Vedanta thing, we have a description of a thought. And they say it is a force. A thought is a force. It's kind of like attraction and repulsion or gravity or something like that. It's a force like that. It's a kind of a law type of thing. See? <clears throat> Now, nature is a vast, infinite storehouse of force, energy. Hmm? So thought is, it's, uh, thoughts are semi-material, you know, they got a kind of a substance to them, and we give them life, so it's, it's more than just we live from it and buy it, what we think. We should, we should be very careful what we think. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.